My wife and I seem to have the same discussions every year about the Christmas tree. Uh, besides the usual discussion, which is, you know, why do we even need to get one? And then it's, Bob, why are you stalling on us getting the Christmas tree? Because I'm hoping that at some point she's just going to forget that it's Christmas and then we'll just like skip the whole thing altogether. But uh, the, the other, once we finally get the tree, and by the way, we're going to get our tree today. Uh, I'm like the last person in America, I think, who hasn't gotten a tree yet, uh, who celebrates Christmas. But anyway, uh, the, the one discussion that we have is what ornaments, and you probably have this discussion too, what ornaments are going to get like the good real estate on the tree? And then what ornaments are not going to get the good section of the tree? Because there's some parts of the tree uh, that, like, you know, the front and center, like the, those are the ones that, you, you know, you want everybody to see those ornaments. And then there's some ornaments that get put on the back that face the wall that nobody sees. And you're just kind of wondering, like, why, you know, why do we even put ornaments on that part of the tree? Just in case, I guess, like the Christmas tree police show up. They want to make sure that you've got it evenly spread around. And... uh so one year we're having this discussion about the tree and about certain ornaments. And um, I have certain ornaments that are my favorite. She has certain ornaments that are her favorite. But I have one ornament in particular that is a favorite of mine. It's found as the, my favorite ornament ever. Um, it's this little styrofoam egg, right? And it's kind of like cut, you know, this, this, hand, this is like homemade. It's cut to look like an egg has cracked. And then it has like this little homemade chicken uh, with little, like, this eyes glued on and this little beak and all that, like, on there. And then it has, like, a little ribbon that uh, you can hang on the tree. And so I, that's my favorite ornament that I've ever had. And uh, so every time we go to put it on, Carrie says, well, why are we going to put that on? It looks like a five-year-old made it. And I said, yes, a five-year-old did make it. I made it at five years old. And so that's kind of the, the thing we have. We have others that we agree on that we think are great, you know, and... It usually involves pictures of my daughter or something. But, uh, but then there's the star on the top. And nobody can really argue with the star on the top of the tree, right? Because I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen a star on the bottom of the tree. But you get the star. It's big and it's supposed to go on the top. So right when you turn those lights on, the first thing that you notice is the star that's on the top kind of bringing all of it together. And the reason that we put a star on the top of the tree is because it's part of the Christmas story, right? And most of us remember that. It involves a star. It involves a bunch of guys that are traveling a distance to be able to find uh, this child that's born, that the star is leading them to, and, and all of that. But here's what I want us to know, is that it didn't go down exactly the way that we think. And I'm just going to warn you right now, what I'm about to show you is going to ruin your nativity scene forever. It has ruined the nativity scene in my house, and it has caused many discussions in my home about why I'm a Scrooge and why I'm trying to ruin Christmas with all of the stuff that I say and all this. But I'm, I will tell you this, that if we will kind of take the step and look at this nativity in a new way, that it will reveal to us something about Christmas in, in, a, in an entirely new way. And we'll be able to see Christmas in a way that we haven't seen before. And that's what we've been starting. Last week, we started a series uh, called Trees, a new way to look at Christmas. And we looked at um, this no room at the end and what that really means. For us, and sometimes we just kind of accept what it is, and uh, just because it's just the story, but yet we kind of we peel back the layers, we're able to see something a little bit more than what really took place. And that's really what the Christmas story is all about. It's about us kind of getting beneath the surface and finding out really what it is that happened. And the thing is, is that our tree is telling us a story. It's telling us parts of the story. When we make room for the Christmas tree in our home, we're making room for Jesus, even though there was no room in this guest room. And then when we put the star on the top of the tree, it's speaking to us a message 
a message of the priority and the purpose of our lives. It's asking us a question, in fact. And the question is, who do we worship and who do we follow? But what I want to do as we begin is give you the background of the Christmas story so we know kind of what's happening. Now, here's the thing, right? Now, most of us have one of these. This is actually mine. This is my uh, nativity. And, and, and the thing is this, is that this, this is the funny part, is um, I don't know if you've ever really thought through any of this stuff, but there's, there's a cow in the nativity, right? Like, now, there's never, there hasn't been a cow in Bethlehem in over at least, you know, 2,000 years, probably more. Why there is a cow here, I don't know. My feeling is, is that the company that manufactured this said, well, it's a 10-piece set. We could charge a little more if we made an 11. Throw a cow in. Who's going to know the difference? So the cow's really not supposed to be there, so we'll put him over here, like in northern Israel, where they are, are normally. And then there's, there's the wise men, and let's kind of walk over to these guys. Uh, and we've got to ask the question, you know, who are the wise men, right? I mean, who are these guys? Uh, because, now, because to really understand the Christmas story, we've got to know who it is that they are. And, and there probably aren't who we think they are. Here's the first question. How many were there? Oh, I know. There's three. Because I know the song, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts, we've traveled so far. I, I, that's it. Well, careful. Uh, once again, if you read the, the, the account in the scriptures, you know what you'll find? It doesn't say how many there were. We know there's, there were wise men, so there was at least two of them. Oh no, but don't they all have names? Yes, and those names were made up about seven centuries later. So if you say, oh, I know the names of all three, and then they, they showed up on January 6th, so we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but so the thing is this, is that we think there's three because we gave them names. We think there's three because, you know, we go to a party, a birthday party, and we bring one gift, right? We're thinking they probably did the same. Jesus was born. They showed up at his birthday. Could call it a party. And so then he shows up. These guys show up. So they, they couldn't have been two of them bringing, you know, all, you know gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Could you imagine if one actually brought the gold and the frankincense, the other guy just brought myrrh? I mean, he probably would have felt bad about himself doing that. So we just kind of say that there was three. By the way, but we don't really know. We know that there was at least two. In fact, in early Christian art and literature in the first two to three centuries, it, depi- uh, it depicts the wise men as anywhere from two to eight. So we really have no idea how many there were. We know that there was more than two. That's all that the story tells us. And, and then let's talk about who they were. Uh, they were... They were magi. Now, what does that mean? We, we talked about, you know, talking about the magi coming from the east. The magi is actually a term that it, uh, refer, it's a Greek word that refers to a specific type of Persian priest. Now, this is a, this is really interesting because and I, I promise this is really like I'm glad I came to church and learned about the Persian priests. Uh, I promise it's going to make sense in a minute. We just got to kind of back up a little bit and then take a running start. So this is the part where we put our thinking caps on and then. You can take your thinking cap on. You don't have to think anymore in a few minutes. But here's what happens. Is that um, we know that they, they're magi because they're this type of priest from the east. How far east? Scholars say that they were from the area of Babylon and that they were part of an elite group of people that actually studied the stars. Now, I don't want you to think like astrology, studying the stars. I want you to think like they were like ancient astronomers. So don't think like, you know, they were checking horoscopes or anything like that, or like, you know, they're psychics like Miss Cleo. Anybody remember Miss Cleo? Anybody remember that? You know, she got sued. Isn't that interesting? She didn't see it coming. It's weird. Um, anyway, um, but who were the Magi? And this is your fill-in and your outline. The Magi were men who studied the stars and interpreted dreams. They studied the stars and interpreted dreams. That's in the notes that we gave you. 
And I hope you're following along. Now, what's interesting about this is that we learn about these guys about six uh, in the scriptures. We learn about them about 600 years before this event. You say, well, well, what do you mean? How, How do we learn about them? We learn about them because there's this guy by the name of Daniel who has a book out named Daniel. Uh, and, and, and here's what happens. What happens is, is that Daniel is this godly young man who gets taken from his home in Israel. He gets taken from there to Babylon when Israel is overtaken by the Babylonians. Now, Daniel is this godly young man, and God gives him favor with the king. And Daniel has this ability, as he prays and seeks God, to be able to interpret the dreams that the king has and not only know what the dream is, but give him the interpretation of what it means. So, Daniel, uh, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has this dream, and then he, Daniel is able to tell him what it means. And this is what happens, is that one, when no one else is able to interp- know what the dream is and interpret it, that then here's what takes place. This is what Nebuchadnezzar says. This is in Daniel chapter 4 in your notes. It says, At last Daniel came in before me, and I told him the dream. He was named Belteshazzar after my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. And I said to him, Belteshazzar, that is Daniel, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what my dream means. Now here's the thing that's important for you to note if you want to underline that phrase, chief of the musicians. This is the term in Hebrew, Rab Magi, R-A-B-M-A-G-I, Rab Magi, chief of the magicians. That is that he was, and once again, when we talk about magicians, we're not talking about pulling a bunny out of your hat. We're not talking about sawing a person in two and then putting them back together. What we're talking about is, is, is something very different. He was the chief of these astronomers, the chief of these guys who studied the stars, the chief of these guys who interpreted dreams. Now, this begins to answer a question for us. If you've never asked the question, here's, here's a good one to ask. Why do these astronomers from 600 miles away in Babylon, care about a baby, about a savior being born in Israel, in this town called Bethlehem, which is this little podunk town that you would pass through getting to Jerusalem. And the reason is this, is because apparently Daniel had told them a story or two had shared with them what the scriptures have to say concerning the Messiah and about a passage that would change the way they saw the stars forever. And here's the passage. It's in the book of Numbers. It says this in Numbers 24:17. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, this was a prophecy concerning the Messiah, and the understanding was that when the Messiah was to be born, when the Savior of the world was to be born, that a star would appear that would then lead you to where this scepter, which was a a symbolic term, which means whoever holds the scepter is the one who's ruling and reigning, that a king would be born in this place. That's why when they show up, they, they say, where is he who's born king of the Jews, because they recognized that the one, this child that was born was a savior. He was this anointed one. He was the Messiah. But at the same time, he was also this king who was to be born. You see, they understood this prophecy. And because of Daniel's influence, even 600 years later, these magi, these astronomers, these wise men are still seeking to follow him and to know him. So I'm going to give you that background, and now we're going to jump into the story 
And here's what we find. It says, uh, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he gathered all of the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, who are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over them where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now, the first thing that, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the first thing that should draw our attention and that would have drawn the attention of any Jewish reader at that time. This one phrase, three words, Herod was troubled. Now, once again, this would have gotten their attention immediately. Now, why is that? Because Herod, or also known as Herod the Great, Herod was a guy that was completely unstable mentally, emotionally, and otherwise. Now, Herod is the guy that actually killed his wife named Miriam. And then uh, he killed her because uh, he believed that she was planning a plot to assassinate him. And then after he had killed her, he missed her. So he built a statue in his house of her. So when he would be able to come home from a long day at work, he'd say, hi, honey. And it was just a statue, you know, give her a high five or something. And it's like, so this is just how like really odd this guy is after he does this. Now, this is also the same guy. Now, this is why they're all troubled. This is why the chief priests and the scribes are all, you know, they're all wigging out over this whole thing. And, and here's why. This, it's another story that we're told. This is in uh, a, a book. Uh, it's in these ancient Jewish writings that speak of this time. And, and this is what it is. Um, Herod goes to the land that he's from, a land called Idiomea, which is um, just uh, east of Israel, which is where he was from. And he decides, he hears this voice, and the voice tells him to kill all of his superiors in his homeland. So he goes, he kills all of his superiors, and he leaves this one girl alive. Now the one girl, when she realizes that Herod has kept her alive for the sole purpose of marrying her, she decides that the only course of action other than marrying him, is jumping off of the roof of a house and killing herself. It's a true story. Uh, and so this, this, and then, now, this is what happens. Herod sees it. He kills all of these superiors. He wants to marry this girl. This girl jumps off of the roof of a building and kills herself. He says to himself, you know, who are the people always telling me to obey what's written anyway? Now, mind you, it had nothing to do with what was written. He heard a voice in his head, which, by the way, you know, 
seek medication, but we'll leave that for another time, uh, which is what he should have done. But he decides not to do that. He decides, he, he starts blaming, who are the people that say I should obey what's written anyway? It's the rabbis. So he goes back to Israel and he kills all of the leading rabbis, except for one. This rabbi named Baba Ben Buta, and that's not even a made-up name. Uh, Baba Ben Buta is the only rabbi that he leaves alive, but just out of spite, he pokes out his eyes. So now, uh, so when the Bible says Herod is troubled, listen, when Herod is troubled, everybody's in trouble. Nobody's safe because this guy is mentally unstable. Now, here's the thing. So now you can imagine what happens when they, he calls all the scribes and the chief priests and he says, I'm going to ask you a Bible question. Where's the Messiah to be born? And they're probably thinking, we'll tell you, let's get our goggles out first uh, so we can have some kind of protection uh, before the, you, know, you poke our eyes out if we don't like the answer. So he tells them where it's going to be. And you can just imagine why Herod's troubled. Because the wise men have shown up asking this question, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Now understand, he was King Herod. He was the king of the Jews. So the wise men show up and they say, hey, where is the king born? Where is the king? Um, that's me. Nah, not you. Wrong thing to say to a guy with a Napoleon complex. He was less than five feet tall, weighed a couple hundred pounds. Uh, so you can, I mean, he kind of like had more of like a Danny DeVito kind of look, you know, if you want to give a picture. And so he asks where the Messiah is going to be born. They answer Bethlehem and then the wise men go then to Bethlehem. But here's the thing, and this is the part that's really important. The part that's really important is, is that if you check out what it says in verse one, it says now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem after. And then it goes on. Uh, if, if you look later in verse uh, nine or so. It says, you know, go search out the young child. Now, once again, there's uh, not to get too technical, but there is actually a word in Greek, uh, which is brephos, B-R-E-P-H-O-S, which would refer to either a fetus in the womb or a newborn child, an infant. And that's the word. That's the Greek word that they would have used if they were speaking specifically about an infant. Now, but they use a different word. They use uh, this Greek word paidon, not paduan for you Star Wars fans. Paidon, P-A-I-D-O-N, which refers to a toddler. So here's the thing that's, that's very problematic. We set the nativity up, and we have the wise men showing up in the manger. That's a problem. They didn't show up for at least 18 months. So here's what I do in my house. In my house, I like to take the wise men, and I like to put them on the other side of the house. Because to me, that just seems normal to actually be biblically accurate we'll put them on the other side of the house so that now it seems like they're making their trek and then hopefully they'll get there by next christmas because this christmas they're not going to make it the other thing is this it says that they went into the house you see uh joseph and mary didn't make the manger permanent residence and last week we talked about this that it actually wasn't this it wasn't you know like a barn it was more of a cave so this is even wrong that's got to go and so now we've got this. The truth is, is that you get the shepherds show up. That's good. But the angel shows up to say something to the shepherd in the field. The angel doesn't show up at the manger. So the angel's got to go because that's messed up. You've got a horse here. I don't know. Somebody rode a horse. That's fine. You got a sheep. That's good. And who you got? Who are you left with? Joseph, Mary, Jesus, a horse, a sheep and a shepherd. It looks OK. 
If we only had a cave, we could make this thing happen. Now, here's the thing that's important. And this is why this is, why this, this is so huge. Um, now, I don't bring this whole thing up just to kind of give you a little, uh, just to give you a history lesson. I bring this up, and the reason that I think it's so important is because I believe that these wise men speak to us about the real reason for Christmas, that the star is speaking to us something that's so important about Christmas. It's not just to tell you that they didn't show up. Instead, it's something much more profound. Because these guys picture for us, once again, what it means to follow Jesus. Because I want you to think about this for a minute. The star was in the sky, right? Which means everybody could have seen it. I mean, it wasn't necessarily hidden. It wasn't a secret star, we're told. In fact, it's just the star was in the sky. The star was of supernatural origin because it was, follow, it was leading them to a specific place. But you know what I find so interesting? The scribes, the chief priests, these were the guys that were the experts in the Bible. In fact, if you understand the, 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 chief, the, the, the scribes, they were also called in other areas of the New Testament, they're called the lawyers. And that's because they were the experts in the law of Moses. And the reason was is because they were the ones, that, they were scribes, they made copies. This is once again before Xerox. And so they were like human Xerox machines. They were making copies of the Bible. And you can imagine if you, if you started now saying, I'm going to make... I'm going to start copying, making copies of the Bible. I'm just going to write it out by hand. After the fourth or fifth time, I'm guessing that you and I would probably have it memorized pretty well. So when someone asks them a Bible question, boom, they know. Someone says, where's the Messiah to be born? Oh, come on, that's easy. That's in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That, that's Bethlehem. But you know what I find even more interesting? That even though they knew where the Messiah was supposed to be born, they didn't bother showing up. In fact, from where they were in Jerusalem to Bethlehem was less than six miles. I've actually made the trip from that place in, uh, in Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And I can tell you right now, it's not that far. It's like a five-minute car ride. Now, obviously, their car wasn't as good. But what I can tell you is this, is that, you know, five miles, would it take you like maybe an hour walking tops if you're just taking a leisurely stroll? Maybe 30 minutes if you're walking really motivated? But instead, you know what happened? They didn't, they weren't really all that interested. Even though they knew the prophecy in Micah that Jesus was, that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, even though they had known the prophecy in Numbers about the star that was going to appear, listen, they wouldn't make the trip. And we can call it, oh, they're busy, oh, they're preoccupied, or we could just call it what it really is. What it really is is that they had another king. You see, they had another king that they were following. You see, they were saying, the wise men were asking, who is he that's born the king of the Jews? And here's what the, the, the scribes were essentially saying. There's already a king of the Jews, and we're following him. They had created this world of safety, comfort, and respect, listen, by serving another king, even though outwardly you never would have guessed it because they had all the religious lingo down, they had all the religious dress, they, knew, they had all the religious respect and all of that. They had all the religious associations. But if we were to look past the outward and look into the heart, you know what we would have found? Is that these guys had all of that except the only thing that they lacked was really knowing God at all. And that's what was so problematic. You see, these wise men, they didn't know the language. They, they, they weren't Jews. They, they didn't speak Hebrew. They didn't know all of the prophecies. They knew what had been taught to them and told to them. 
They weren't the right nationality. They weren't Jewish to be able to find the Messiah. But here's what they had. They had a real desire to know God. And friends, can I say what, what I fear? What I fear is this, is that some of us have been around here for a while. And this all gets real comfortable. And it's like, you know, hey, you know, I'll show up sometimes. And if I show up, not show up, it's cool. That's yeah, cool, man. God understands cool. And, and, and you, know, you know what the, the problem is with that? I fear that we can kind of just know the drill. And our hearts can be very, very far from God. And that's the last thing that God wants of you and I. What does God want? I believe he wants us to have the same kind of spiritual habits that these wise men had. And here, I want to, the last few minutes that we have, I, I want to spend talking about three spiritual habits that these wise men had that I believe led them to this place in history where we'll actually never forget them and we can't tell the story of Christmas without them. We can't put up a tree without recognizing the contribution that they made. Here's the first one if you're taking note. The first one is that wise men seek Jesus wholeheartedly. These men traveled 600 miles. And once again, this wasn't plane, train, or automobile. This was 600 miles by camel, on foot, through the desert. And chances are it took them over a year. In fact, we can extrapolate the fact that if the star appears when Jesus is born and they left soon after, it took them probably close to 18 months to make this entire trek to be able to get to the place where Jesus was. And the question is why? And the reason is because they were seeking God. They put their lives on hold to find Jesus because they recognized that knowing God and that knowing this Savior who was born was the very reason for which they were created. In fact, this is what the book of Jeremiah would say. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. There's a story that's told of this man, this young man who walks up to a pastor um, I'm not sure if it's a true story or an apocryphal story, but whatever the case, that um, makes the point. This young man walks up to a pastor and he says, I, I really want to know God. And he says, well, do you want me to show you where God is, the pastor says. And he says, yes, I do. And so he takes him out to near this lake. And he says, I want you to, the pastor says to the young man, I want you to look into the lake. So he starts leaning forward a little bit. He says, no, you've got to get closer. So he, he kneels down and he starts looking towards uh, into the lake. He says, no, you've got to get closer. So he says, it's closer. He says, you've got to get even closer. So he gets even closer. And, and, and the young man gets to the point where he's leaned over and his nose is actually touching the water. And it's at that very moment that the pastor puts his foot on his back and sticks his head in the water completely. And you can imagine the startle that and the, this young man starts flailing his arms, trying to get away, and he can't. And the pastor's just holding his foot down as this young man is essentially drowning. And then, you know, moments before this kid is ready to start swallowing all this water and giving, you know, just losing his life, he finally takes his foot off. You can imagine the, you know, what the young man was thinking at that time. He says, why did you do that? And this pastor says... When you seek God, like you sought that breath, you'll find Him. You see, friends, I believe that that's what the Bible says. See, when you seek me with all of your heart, you'll find me. God isn't found in, ca in having this casual relationship with God. 
saying, oh, I'm a Christian, but I'm a Christian kind of on my own terms. Instead, here's what God says. You'll seek me and know me and experience me in your life when you seek me with all of your heart. He's found when we give all of our lives to him, not when we live our lives for him half-heartedly. He's found when we give him all of our lives and we surrender to him as our king. But friends, it's hard to do when there's another king that we're serving. In fact, isn't that what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6? That no one can serve two masters. They'll either love the one and hate the other. Or hate the one and be devoted to the other. And that's exactly what happens. That's what happens in the lives of these scribes. They, they, they recognize what God has to say in the Bible. But then they're saying, but you know, it's really comfortable here for us. I mean, we've got some respect and we've got the ear of the king and we've got all of this. And so for us to actually take a step towards Bethlehem is taking a step towards serving the real king that's been born, but I'd have to risk losing what I have here. You see, the the question, once again, Christmas asks us the question, who are we serving? You see, who is the God that we're serving? Are we serving a God of convenience? Are we serving a God of, of partying? Are we serving a God of greed? Serving a God of lust? Listen, if, if that's the case, let me just be really honest with you. If that's the case, then, then the God you worship is yourself. If that's the case for me, the God I worship is myself. You see, it, it becomes this, this moment where it's like, you know, I'll serve God if it's convenient for me. I'll serve God if it works out for me. And I want to tell you something, that that is not the gospel. The gospel is that God gave everything for me. That God so loved us that he actually sent his son, the one that he loved the most, into this world. To die for us so that we could be forgiven and have the promise of eternal life. And now, our response to that kind of love is to walk away from the other gods that we've been worshipping. The other kings that we've been serving. And simply worship and serve him. Now here's the second one. The second one is, not not only do wise men seek Jesus wholeheartedly, wise men give to Jesus faithfully. Now what do I mean by that? It says that they gave Jesus gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And here's the thing that happens. Once again, another thing we don't understand about the Christmas story. We call them kings. You know, we once again, we three kings of Orient are. There's nothing in the Bible to suggest that they were kings. Once again, these men were, were, were men who studied science, men who were able to interpret dreams. And so, if that, and, and because I think what happens is if they were kings, it kind of somehow lets us off the hook. And we say, you know, they brought gifts to Jesus, but I, I don't really have to bring gifts to Jesus because, you know, they're kings and, you know, kings have a lot and I don't have a lot and whatever the case. And listen, they weren't rich. They weren't kings. Here's what they were. They were simply committed. And love has this way of causing us to give our very best. And that's simply what God is looking for. And this isn't even just in relation to finances, while it can certainly apply to that. The question that we have to answer is, are we giving God our very best? Our very best attention? Our very best obedience? Our very best service? Our very best in our giving financially? Our very best of everything in our lives? Are we giving Him our very best? In fact, listen to what the book of Malachi says. This is uh, a pretty heavy statement. This is in Malachi chapter 1. 
It says, instead of honoring me, you profane me. This is God speaking to the people of Israel. You profane me when you say worship is not important. And what we bring to worship is of no account. And when you say, I'm bored, this doesn't do it for me. It doesn't do anything for me. You act so superior, sticking your noses in the air. Act superior to me, the God of the angel armies. And when you do offer something to me, it's a hand-me-down, broken or useless. Do you think I'm going to accept it? This is God speaking to you. A curse is on the person who makes a big show of doing great things for me, an expensive sacrifice, say, and then at the last minute brings something puny and worthless. I'm a great king, the God of the angel armies, honored far and wide, and I'll not put up with it. Can you hear the passion as God is speaking? When he says, you know, are you giving me your very best? Because we say that we're giving God our very best. We sing songs that talk about giving God our very best. But the question is, are we really giving him our very best? One of the practices that my wife and I have, and I've, I hesitated even talking about this because I don't want it to be something that's misunderstood. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to risk it. Um, one of the things that my, uh, my wife and I do every year is that th- th- this is just one of our practices. I'm not saying something you have to do, but it's, it's, it's our practice. Is that uh, whenever we have like our, our yearly Christmas offering uh, for the church and we're going to support missions or support uh, some other activity. Um, one of the things that my wife and I set is we say the money that we're going to spend the most on. Like the, the gift that is going to be the biggest that we spend at Christmas is going to be at, for the Christmas offering. So whatever it is that we want to spend on anybody else, we want to make sure that what we're giving to God is the, is the most. Why? Because we believe that if Christmas is really about Jesus, then he should probably get the biggest gift that anybody else gets. And you say, well, why is that? Why? It's not something that's legalistic. It's not something that I necessarily have to do. But here's what happens. I believe that it's something that love compels us to do. Because as that passage says, he is a great king. And as someone who is seeking to follow that great king it's, it's only, it seems only natural that the king should get the greatest gift that I give every year. You see, that's what made these wise men so wise. They gave their greatest gift to Jesus. You see, they showed who their king was through the gift that they gave, through the fact that they sought him with all of their hearts. The, the, the scribes showed who their king was as well. They showed that Herod was really their king. Because, see, once again... Christmas is really about showing us who our king really is. You see, and we can talk about all kinds of things, but but here's really what it comes down to. If your king is materialism, you're going to bring your best gifts to that. All your treasures are going to be going towards that God. Once again, if if your king is sex or your king is something else, you're going to give all of your effort, all of your worship, all of your energy, all of your money, all of your attention, all of your effort, all of it is going to be following and seeking that God and that king. But if your God is the true and living God, listen, then we need to worship him. Here's how Joshua would put it in, in his book in chapter 24. He says, worship the Lord, obey him, and always be faithful. Get rid of the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived on the other side of the Euphrates River and in Egypt. But if you don't want to worship the Lord, then choose right now. Will you worship the same idols your ancestors did? Or 
since you're living on land that once belonged to the Amorites, maybe you'll worship their gods. I won't. My family and I are going to worship and obey the Lord. Here's the third one. That wise men worship Jesus sincerely. They worship Jesus sincerely. You see, we tend to think of music. When we think of the word worship, we tend to think of music. But see, worship is much more than just music. Worship is really a life that's lived to the glory of God. Because, in fact, the, the word that's translated worship, it's the word proskuno. Uh, and I'll let you figure out how to spell that. Um, it, it's the word proskuno in Greek. And here's what it means, literally. This word that we translate worship, it means to turn towards and kiss. I want you to think about that, that that's what worship is, to turn towards and kiss, which means that by nature, if we're turning towards someone, we're turning away from someone else. Because that's what happens when we worship. We're declaring who God is in our lives. We're praising God for saving us, for aligning our hearts uh, to His. You see, that's what the real Christmas story is all about. It's really about who our King is. It's about who's at the top of our tree. It's about who it is that we really worship. The scribes had the look, they had the lingo, but they lacked the heart because they worshipped another king. You don't know what God wants for Christmas? Here's what it is. It's in the book of Micah, chapter 6. This is the question the prophet asks, and then God answers him. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offering and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then this is God's response. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God wants. Three things for you and me. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. My translation of that is to do the right thing in the right way for the right reason. You see, God wants you to seek him and to walk with him, to put him first in your life because it's only then that our life comes into focus. You know why? Because you and I were created to worship. That's why all of us naturally worship something or someone. It's not, well, do I worship or not? All of us are worshipers because that's the way God wired us. The question is, what or whom are we worshiping? And here's what I know. Is that as I've been talking it's possible that maybe God has been speaking to you and you're saying, you know, maybe I haven't really been worshiping God. Maybe you're here and you're, you're far from God and you're saying, man, this is all new to me. The idea that maybe I'm worshiping someone else or, I mean, that's, that's an amazing thought. And yet here's what I know. Today can be your day to be like these magi, like these wise men, where you can turn where well, you can become a worshiper, one who turns towards and kisses. Where well, you can turn away from an old life and now begin to walk towards a new life and now give your devotion, affection, and attention to the one who created you 
to the true and living God who sent his son into the world so that we might have life. Because here's what I know. That old life has left you bruised. It's, it's left you beaten. It's left you empty. And now it's an opportunity for us to turn towards God who wants to give us life that's real and life that's lasting and life that stretches into eternity. And if that's you, and maybe it's you're a Christian and you have been worshiping another God. You've been serving God. You've been worshiping God not wholeheartedly, but half-heartedly. You've been following God at your convenience. Then maybe this is the moment where you turn and where you make that decision to be like those wise men that say, whatever it takes, I'm going to seek him. I'm going to seek him like if my head was under the water, I would be seeking that next breath. Let's pray together. And God, I want to thank you for your goodness, for your love. I want to thank you for these moments that we can really check our heart and evaluate our lives. And God, if we're far from you, I pray that today would be the day that we take a step in your direction. God, some of us are Christians and and we know, but we've just walked away. We haven't put you first. Some of us have never made a decision to follow your son, Jesus, to, to become a real Christian. And today's the day that we want to make that decision. Listen, for those of you that want to make that decision, I, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. I'm going to ask that you pray it out loud. It has nothing to do with my words, but I believe it has everything to do with your heart. I believe that these words spoken, if, they meant, if, if they're spoken in sincerity, God will answer. Those of you that are far from God, you don't feel like you've been knowing God, like you've been seeking God wholeheartedly, then you you need to pray this too. Say, God, I'm starting over. I'm starting fresh. I'm seeking you with a whole heart. Just say, dear God, I'm opening my heart and inviting you in. I ask that you forgive me for all that I've done. And I thank you for Jesus who died for me, that I might have life. In Jesus' name, amen.